millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast, and this, an episode in our series on iconic ships. Now, if you haven't listened yet, do please head to our back catalogue and check out all of the other fabulous episodes we have done on history's most iconic ships. Most recently, we've published numerous episodes on the magnificent Lusitania and her terrible loss in the First World War. Brunel's extraordinary ship, the Great Eastern, which includes a video of a frankly astonishing ship model, a a diorama, I should probably say, held in the collections of the National Maritime Museum in London. On Shackleton's endurance, just been found, of course, in the Antarctic, the Thermopylae, HMS Barham, Ark Royal, Victory, the list goes on and on. But today we're heading across the pond to hear about the SS United States, a ship that truly does merit the title Iconic. As her designer, William Francis Gibbs, said... You can't set her on fire, you can't sink her, and you can't catch her. Launched in June 1951, she was the last remaining American superliner from the golden age of transatlantic travel. She was built specifically to break the speed record, and my word, did she do that. On her maiden voyage, she made the transatlantic run in just three and a half days. And to this day, she still holds the transatlantic speed record. No other passenger ship has crossed the Atlantic faster in either direction. And this July, the 3rd of July, will be the 70th anniversary of the SS United States maiden voyage. To find out more, I spoke with Susan Gibbs. Susan is the granddaughter of the ship's designer, William Francis Gibbs. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to her as much as I enjoyed talking with her. Here is Susan. Susan, let's start. Um, Can you describe this uh, magnificent vessel to to our listeners who, who may have no idea about it at all? The SS United States, or America's flagship, is the fastest transatlantic liner of all time, smashed the speed record on her maiden voyage using only two-thirds of her power, and against all odds, remains afloat today. 
It's completely extraordinary that she is afloat. Um, wh- where is she afloat now? What, what's her condition? She is currently in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the U.S., and she is, her paint is peeling. She's looking a little, a little weary. However, that's a bit of an optical illusion in that she is still structurally sound. Recent studies have, have concluded that her hull strength is 92% of original. She was so overbuilt to begin with as a convertible troop ship double hull that that she's still she's still got it but and she's getting increasingly impatient in philadelphia because she's ready for her her next move yeah let's just nip back a bit there you you see you mentioned she was a convertible troop ship it's actually a really important part of her design and history you tell us a little bit more about that why it was important and and what happened it it was important in part because uh in the u.s the 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 u.s navy uh, was looking at the role that the great canard liners played in World War II, transporting troops and uh, to two theaters of conflict as well as home, and and so the 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 case was made that we needed the the United States needed a, a vessel to perform a similar service in times of war, and so because of that, because the case was successfully made, a very substantial subsidy was authorized for her construction. So the the U.S. Navy paid a big chunk, two-thirds of her costs. And so because she was a convertible troop ship, she was top secret and designed for speed. And so she could take a full division of troops, so 14,000 I was about to say men. They probably would have mostly been men, if not all men. Uh, 10,000 miles without refueling. So this troop ship function was was critical to her her funding and to her role. Yeah, but uh, ostensibly, uh, if you just went and looked at her, she looked like a passenger liner. She was a passenger liner, but in an emergency could be converted. Um, Those original designs for her being a passenger liner, was it a particularly luxurious vessel or was it one for... For every man. Well, that's that's an interesting question. <laughs> so she epitomized the kind of mid-century modern aesthetic, uh, and so in addition, sh- there was a an obsession with fire proofing, fire prevention on board the vessel. So according to some, she had a bit of a an austere vibe because of, you know, there was no wood anywhere on the vessel. The materials were all kind of modern, naga hide, aluminum. And of course, because she was designed to be convertible into a troop ship at a moment's notice, you know, there were that that really took precedence in terms of just her form, her the, the assembly of her rooms. But but she, I, I think, super stylish. You know, this kind of modern American modernity really was embodied in her, her decor and her features. And uh, but yes, very dif- different from some of the older liners that preceded her in terms of the the feel on board. Yeah, it's certainly because you, if you read about the other ones, so much of the bragging of the luxury is to do with timber panelling or the timber furniture and all the beautiful wood and the beautiful tables um but it was this obsession with fire why were they so worried about fire well uh so this uh, this gets to so my grandfather william francis gibbs was the the vessel's designer and he had a singular obsession with fire starting from 
boyhood, actually, uh, you know, where he would would watch the fires as a kid. The family coachman would take he and his brother to like, you know, see if there was a fire. So they would sort of stare at it. And, and then early ship disasters, both at sea and at dock. So the Normandy in, in 1942, I believe, and, and other catastrophic ship disasters made an enormous impression on him. And he was absolutely obsessed with making the SS United States the, the safest ship ever. He liked to say, you can't set her on fire, you can't catch her, and you can't sink her. And he just <laughs> <Very good. laughs> just uh, was determined to to make that the case. And then, of course, there's you know the safety and its role as a convertible troop ship. There was a premium on safety, but but he took it to an extreme degree, where you know he would make do inspections of the vessel, and if a crew member had put one wooden shelf on you know to to hold a radio, he would demand that the wooden shelf be removed and replaced with a metal alternative. Uh, there, it was just it, it was at, over the top, really. Um, so, so yes, it was it was a very safe ship. It's interesting, I think, because the way that people frame maritime disasters in their mind from in the twentieth century—that's that you know you've got Titanic and you've got various other collisions, and people think about collisions or you know being unlucky enough to be torpedoed in one of the wars, and yet fire really was one of the most prevalent problems, one of the key dangers to all shipping for years. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and it took it took this um, extreme approach to it. I, I read this uh, wonderful story about him o- only allowing uh, a Steinway piano on board once it, uh, Steinway himself had proved that it, it wasn't too bad if it got caught on fire. Oh, absolutely. And my grandfather and Theodore Steinway, they literally had an, an, an argument where expletives were, you know, were, were flowing. Um, and, and only after Steinway performed a test on a mahogany piano, basically doused it with gasoline, ignited it, and proved that it would the flames would sort of sputter out and it wasn't a you know a fire trap. Only then were mahogany pianos approved for use aboard the SS United States. Yeah. How did your grandfather get involved in the project? He was an experienced ship designer before, I presume. Yes, he well he. Uh, it's fair to say that it he spent almost 40 years on this project. He back in the uh, before World War 1 developed a a vision for the fastest ship in the world, a great American liner. He was very competitive with the European uh shipping firms, particularly the Cunard <laughs> line and uh and he was convinced that America should have its own great liner. And so again, back in the in the teens, whether it was 1914, 1915, 1916, I've seen several dates cited. He designed plans for a thousand foot long liner that would go, you know, super fast using the technology of the time and 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 actually made some headway. Uh and we'll go into the whole story, but but it was actually, you know, there were some some movement toward having it built. There was a notion of it being used in a port on Long Island. Anyway, I it 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 developed some traction, but then of course World War One, you know, became the the, the huge preoccupation. Uh, he got involved in the in the shipping then, and and it was sort of put on hold. 
he you know had a, had decades of uh, designing other ships including a large percentage of the nation's output in World War II pioneered the design, the mass assembly of the Liberty ships. And, um, and Gibbs and Cox, his firm, was prolific during World War II. And so it wasn't until after World War II uh, where, where he had achieved some kind of enough political stature. And meanwhile, he had been pains, he and his team painstakingly refining the designs that he had first put pen to paper back in 1915, uh, and that ultimately became the SS United States. So he had this absolutely obsessive quest to to design and bring into the world, you know, the perfect ship. Good for him. I, I, I greatly admire obsessives in the past. They're, they're the ones that get stuff done. You've got to watch out for them. Um, where was she actually built? She was built in Newport News, Virginia. And uh, uh, so, and, it, and at remarkably, I think it was, what was it, I, two and a half years or less that two years, two years and three months she was, she was built, which is very fast. Over 3,000 workers were involved and uh, yes, and it's still a great center of shipbuilding today. Yeah. How did she end up at Philadelphia? Somewhat arbitrarily, actually, after she was pulled from service back in 1969, a succession of owners attempted to bring her back to sea as a as a, as a cruise ship, as floating condos. Uh, there were various plans. And so one of those owners, uh, in preparation for her refit, actually t- towed her t- first to Turkey and then to Ukraine, (laughs) since Ukraine is in the news. And she ended up having her asbestos removed in Ukraine because, of course, as we were discussing, she was laden with it because of its fire prevention quality. So all of her interior Mm. walls were made of an asbestos particle board. And so clearly for any refit to advance, that asbestos needed to be removed. So... Anyway, convoluted story that she ended up being towed back to the the United States, initially bound for Boston, couldn't find a parking spot. One opened up in Philly, and so there she went, really envisaged as a as a temporary peer. But twenty five years later, <laughs> she is still <laughs> in Philly. She's still there, and um, it does look a little sad with some of the the, the pictures of paint peeling off. I've not seen her in. Um, in, in, in the flesh, but I'd very much like to. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Um, we've kind of skimmed to the end here, but what about her glory years? Did she have a, a long service life? She was in service for 17 years and she had a glorious uh, service life. She she carried four U.S. presidents, stars of stage and screen. Just the, the list of her celebrity passengers is is long and fun. You know, from Salvador Dali and his pet ocelot to, you know, Coco Chanel, Greta Garbo, the, the starlets, the comedians, the artistic and literary figures, um, you know, Sylvia Plath and... Tennessee Williams, and of course, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, who only sailed aboard the SS United States, shunned the Cunard alternatives, and they would have their a fancy stateroom complex. They would bring their five dogs with special collars that weren't resigned to the kennel with the other pets. They were allowed to stay in their stateroom, as I understand it. So, so yeah, she had a glorious career, and, and really at the time of her maiden voyage in 1952, this was when the United States was, was really uh, just uh, an economic powerhouse in the industrial machinery, the, the sort of post-war pride of this nation was at its all-time high, and so the SS United States ab- ab- embodied that, embodied that just brilliantly. And back then, as you know, ocean liners weren't just you know, kind of random forms of transportation. They were symbols of national prestige and power. And so she just fulfilled that brilliantly. Has much uh, survived of um, the internal fixtures and fittings, I mean, sort of general artefacts from her glory years? Is there is there much of a collection still out there? Well, so, so back in 1984, a previous owner of the vessel commissioned an auction, which stands... To this day, as I understand it, is the largest auction ever held in which, again, a previous owner to raise funds for the vessel's refurbishment auctioned everything off from the bell to the napkins to the works of art to deck rails to, you know, just just anything that there was a market for. And so... Many of the items that were once aboard the vessel have been are, are, are scattered in the hands of individual and institutional collectors. Uh, however, there still are some items on on board the ship, of course, uh, fixtures, and and we've the SS United States Conservancy has carefully documented those. In addition, we are assembling a and well, we have assembled a a very large collection of artifacts, archival documentation, objects from the ship that are not currently aboard the vessel. They're, they're elsewhere with the plans of, of bringing them back to the ship as part of her restoration and as part of a ship-based museum that we are advancing. Tell me about the the conservancy. I mean, uh, as I understand it, the, the SS United States got into a very sorry state in the late 90s and you guys 
form to, to step in. Yes, we did. Uh, the, I mean, the, the SS United States had been largely forgotten. Uh, she was languishing. She, and, and in fact, was, was, uh, came very close to being scrapped by a previous owner who no longer could, could, uh, could, the, the previous owner being Norwegian Cruise Line, which had acquired the vessel with plans for returning her to seagoing service as part of an American flagged fleet that they had envisaged at the time. But those plans ran aground as part of the global economic crisis, et cetera. Uh, and so she was, she was days away from, from being sent to the scrapyard. And the SS United States Conservancy, which had been founded previously, uh, issued a you know four blaze alert or, or yeah you know just uh, raised developed an, a, an SOS campaign, and were fortunate enough to secure philanthropic support from a a prominent Philadelphia uh, uh, philanthropist uh, who provided the funds to enable us to purchase the ship uh, from from. Uh, the previous owner, and so that was a uh, a very important development. We've owned the vessel for over ten years now and have kept her safely afloat all this time. And, and what are the plans for the future? Yes, the plans for the future are a a what we call a kind of mixed use muse- museum and development complex. So so a a soaring fabulous shipboard museum that would contain our our collections and celebrate mid-century modern art and design etc in tandem with a commercial component. So the conservancy has been in a a partnership with a commercial real estate development firm based in New York called RXR which has been advancing feasibility plans for the vessel to be resurrected, revitalized, converted into a commercial facility as well in tandem with our museum. So the idea is for a hotel, event space, fabulous restaurants, you know, who know, you know, the plans are are still being formulated, but it's a very exciting uh, proposition because, of course, this is it's basically like a horizontal skyscraper. So for this extraordinary historic vessel to to kind of enter into a, a city such as New York, although, you know, it certainly could be elsewhere, it would just be one of the most exciting, unique projects in in recent memory, because again, combining just the iconic historic significance and form of this vessel with modern spaces that would uh, would attract both residents and tourists alike is just uh, thrilling to to think about. You're quite lucky with the number of wonderful cities that are by the sea in America. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how many of them might have expressed interest in, in having a vessel like yours to come to their come to their shores, their yes. seafront. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a it's unique. It is it's it's a it's a very exciting proposition, and we're we're uh, you know we're hopeful. That said, of course, we're just we've just are all of us coming out of a very challenging global health pandemic where commercial real estate markets have been hammered. Uh, but so it's, it's, that has slowed progress, but we remain very encouraged and are determined to keep this, to keep history alive to, to, uh, you know, she's the only great American ocean liner left and we are 
absolutely determined to to save her. And completely fireproof as well. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, listen, it's a wonderful project. I think you guys are doing brilliantly. Um, do you have any, uh, last question, um, do you have any uh, favourite artefacts that have survived? from Favourite artefacts? There, there are so many, actually. I mean, from, I, from the big to the small. I mean, the fact that, you know, she's still here. So the, the act of going up into, you know, her funnels and climbing up the, the, the ladders and peeking one's head out to, and looking at the Philadelphia skyline, if you call, you know, a funnel an artifact. In other words, she, it's, uh, it's so thrilling that, that, again, her form, she's, she still exists. But then from the very small thing, so one former crew member gave me a little jar of, of a silver ball bearings, like little, uh, basically it, it was the ingredient for the silver polishing machine that once existed. And these, you know, saved some of the little balls that polished the silver, so random, but so, um, you know, and then of course the stories that, I mean, the Conservancy has been uh, receiving you know, photographs, films, letters. We've been interviewing former passengers and crew members and so the the stories that this ship has to tell are just unbelievable. From, you know, for example, the uh, in 1963, apparently Rita Hayworth, the the, the star of Rita Hayworth, reported a problem in her stateroom that her toilet that the toilet seat had been stolen, and this was. Of <laughs> And as we later found out, or as we have been told, this was a sh- the shenanigans of, of cr- several members of the crew that took the toilet seat as something that had been close to this revered star as a souvenir and then, you know, cut it up. And, you know, so just it's it, the, the stories from the crew and and, and that's just one of, of, of thousands. And so it's it's just a. Yeah, it's, it's hard to answer your question. It's hard to pick just just one or two. It's amazing, actually, um, you talking about it like that. You realise that because it's in living memory, and you know the heydays were in the late fifties and the sixties. That if you if you move now, then you can capture all of these stories that might otherwise be forgotten. Um, I like I like the propellers. Mm-hmm. I'm quite interested in the propellers. Can tell tell me about them because they're they're, they're scattered a little, aren't they? Yeah, but no, the propellers are amazing, and and one of the key factors in her record breaking speed. And and what's the, and they're just beautiful sculptural objects to look at, even if you know one doesn't understand the engineering significance. But but they were uh, one interesting aspect is that they were largely designed by a female engineer at Gibson Cox, Elaine Kaplan, a woman, and she was also Jewish, which again back in that era was unusual for someone with that profile to have such a prominent role, and and painstakingly made, configured it so that there were two four-bladed propellers, two five-bladed propellers to reduce cavitation and. And and yes, yeah, so there are there are one of the propellers was actually just last year mounted on d- display in New York City at, at one of the great piers there, Pier seventy six, uh, and it's uh, which is which is wonderful, and 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 then several educational institutions also have them on display. So yes, we're they, they are important and uh, and preserved. 
they're wonderful. I've, I have to go to Staten Island um, in the next few months. I'm going to see if I can get a photo next to the next to the propellers. Um, Susan, thank you very much indeed for sharing the story of this wonderful ship, and I wish you all of the best. Thank you so much for your interest. Very many thanks for listening. Now, please don't just leave your important work with our podcast here. In particular, please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel, where you will find some really extraordinary things to watch. Animated 3D models of ships, artificial intelligence bringing figureheads to life, battle plans animated, the world's best ship models filmed with the very latest camera technology. There is so much there to get stuck into. This podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So do please check out both of those institutions. You can find the archive of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and you can find the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up. I would urge you all to do so. There is a free level of membership but for a little bit of money you get four copies a year of the Marin as Mirror's journal, access to online and in-person events. You become part of a lovely community, a society that's been helping to preserve maritime history and heritage for over a century. And you can come to dinner on board HMS Victory once a year. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.